Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. First up, the All Blacks are off to the Rugby World Cup. But what if they don't win? How will we cope? We're also at the airport to farewell the side with John Campbell. The Silver Ferns coach, Waimarama Tamanu, tells us why she's stepping off court. The Black Caps coach, Mike Hessen, faces the biggest challenge of his career... And what's wrong with the All-Whites? Why can't they win under coach Anthony Hudson? Golfer Danny Lee continues to impress on the world stage, being named in the international side for the President's Cup. Rower Mahi Drysdale reflects on the one that got away, missing out on his sixth world championship title in France this week. They've got Rio on their minds, kayaker Lisa Carrington and Paralympian Cameron Leslie, who could represent New Zealand in two different sports. We talk to them. And it's as close as he'll get to home on the World Rally Circuit. Hayden Padden lines up in the Rally of Australia. The All Blacks are off on their journey to defend the Rugby World Cup. But what if they can't? What if they're unsuccessful? What if they lose? Well, apparently, according to a leading sports psychologist, they won't incur the wrath of the New Zealand rugby public should they fail in their mission. The All Blacks flew out for England last night to defend the title they won at Eaton Park in 2011. Dr Gary Hermanson's a leading sports psychologist who works with the New Zealand Olympic team and has previously worked with the Black Caps. He says the pressure on the side is not as intense as in 2011. As a nation, um, the expectations that we have um, are pretty high and all those expectations tend to focus on winning the cup rather than how you perform there. And so the real challenge that the whole management team and the players themselves have with the All Blacks is how do you go into this campaign um, being able to be motivated to, to do well um, without getting caught up in the, the difficulties about um, you know the anxiety about not doing well, the anxiety about losing, really. That's, that's the real issue that they have to deal with. In 2011, much was talked of, too, of almost playing at home added to the pressure. So is there might there be even a, a release valve that they're playing overseas this time? Well, historically, we haven't shown that, have we, really? I mean, it seems to me that what happened in 2011 was it was, it was the home territory which actually probably made the ultimate difference in that one point that we needed. So I think being overseas, um, if you think back to previous campaigns, is always going to be a bit of a problem because you lose that immediate connection with uh, you know, the encouraging support. Um, and so when, when you're at home, you get that obvious you know, sign, even if it's just uh, making the grandstands you know, black and hearing all the noise. So my, my own hunch is that this reverts back to the challenge that they've had before playing overseas. And I think the difference, though, is that um, having won it in 2011 uh, with a number of players who are there, the, the consequences of not winning at this time become slightly softened. In the past, it was you know, another four years, another four years, 
whereas having one in 2011, it takes away that kind of a desperation. And so, you know, as as kind of difficult as it might be, it's almost like, well, if we lose, then it's not a major catastrophe, and that takes some of that pressure off. Being labelled something like Dad's Army, how much of an impact might that have? Because that's obviously been big talking points, hasn't it? You're looking at Richie McCord, Dan Carter, Conrad Smith, Ma Nonu, all very long-serving All Blacks yes. that are obviously heading away from the team at the end of this tournament. Well, I, I think there's a little bit of a mix with that. You know, There's a motivation about being able to finish on a high, but the problem is that you know that, that also carries with it that whole sense about, well, yes, but if we don't finish well, then we're going to cop a lot of flack around age and around selection policies, whatever. So, you know, that's when the language creeps in that makes it difficult when people start getting a bit sort of um, over-focused on the importance of winning the cup because of that um, that issue. Um, but I guess the real thing we have to, we're not sure about yet, is whether that um, experience, which is massive in that uh, environment, um, is enough to hold it together that way, or whether it's you know just gone off the boil a little bit, and then people are looking ahead even further than the World Cup into some you know the next phase of their life in terms of overseas or retirement, whatever, and that can take away some of that edge as well. What's your feeling? My hunch is that probably they're going to do better than they've done in the past, but it would be nice to see them do it with a um, that kind of you know talent and ability they have, rather than. Uh, one of those situations we've had, uh, and we had it in 2011 as well, where uh, you know the the pressure got really great, and they didn't play anywhere near as what they're capable of, and they won it, but it was more a relief than than um, exhilaration. The All Blacks flew out of Auckland Airport on Thursday night, and John Campbell was there to see them off. What's your name? Jasper. <laughs> What's your name? Ariel. What's your name? Regan. What's your name? Chris. The children lined up with wide eyes and wonder. And are you three of the biggest All Black fans in New Zealand? Yes. yes. But not only children. What's your name? Margaret Harrop. And no. I'm from New Plymouth. Yeah, well, my, my father followed the 1924 All Blacks around England, you see, so... He did not? He was actually a press correspondent, so, so I have his scrapbook, you see, of that tour. So that's uh, quite a worthwhile memento. They were the Invincibles, played 32 132. They sailed to England over a month at sea. 91 years on, the All Blacks following them are flying. Business class, 24 hours, and they're there. Some things change, some things never change. What's your name? Susie. And Susie, why do you love the All Blacks so much? Uh, well, I grew up in Taranaki, grew up in rugby. I've got four older brothers. We went every day to Rugby Park when I was a girl. So I've just grown up loving it, I guess. Who is the greatest All Black you've ever seen? <laughs> Bob Scott. Yes. Why? Oh, well, I saw him play tricking him with the Kiwis, and he was just superb. And now, you guessed it. Richie McCaw and Dan Carter. Um, Richie McCaw's still my favourite. Probably Richie McCaw, just because he's so great, eh? How good do you think Richie McCaw is? Well, I think he's the best out of the team, and Dan Carter's the second. There was something beautiful about the children in the crowd. A candour. Alex, why are you here? Um, because... Mum and Dad made you come, eh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> would you like to be an All Black when you grow up? <coughs> no. <laughs> what would you like to be when you grow up? A professional soccer player. More money in soccer? Yeah. Way more? 
you'll get like $250,000 a month. Eat your heart out, Richie and Dan. What we're trying to do is be good human beings. Earlier in the day, Coach Steve Hansen was so philosophical it was arresting. Why? Well, the last time the All Blacks played a World Cup in the UK, we were knocked out in the quarterfinals. Remember France, Cardiff, 2007? Terrible. Listen to some of Hansen's language about that eight years on. A little arrogant, too comfortable, and just expected it to happen. And here's his conclusion. When you get overconfident, you, know, you, you think that you're doing things right, but you're not. And when you really look at it uh, with honest eyes, and there's a few inconvenient facts that you're missing, and, and it's those inconvenient facts that you've got to you know, really find and you've got to look for them. So it's about the stuff that you can't brush over, because if you keep brushing it over, you're going to fall on your face. Back at the airport, the players pass from the bus to check-in through the crowd. Kevin Mialamu is gracious as always. It's lovely to see all the people here tonight, isn't it? It is. Uh, it's always humbling, so we're very appreciative. Off they go. Their fans believe in them. Do you think we can win the Rugby World Cup? Yes, we can. Yes. The players, like veteran Conrad Smith, are ready, really ready. Good that it's finally got to the stage. And the coach, well, he's gone zen. It doesn't guarantee that we'll win this World Cup. It just means that we'll be in the right mental uh, shape and hopefully you know, all the hard work we've done physically will be in the right shape. And, and then, you know, if we get a bit of luck and we use that luck the right way, uh, we might be fortunate enough to win it. But, you know, you've got to earn the right to it. It's not going to be given to us on a plate. That's All Blacks coach Steve Hansen, ending that report from John Campbell. The outgoing Silver Ferns coach, Wai Tamanu, believes the national side has the makings of a team that can beat Australia on a regular basis, but needs a fresh voice. Tomanu is stepping down after four years as head coach, despite reinvigorating the side at the recent World Champs, when they beat Australia in pool play at the tournament, only to then narrowly lose to the world number ones in the final. She will, however, coach the Silver Ferns in next month's Constellation Series against Australia, with her replacement due to be named in November. She told Bridget Tunnicliffe, given the improvements the side has made, it was a difficult decision to walk away. It's very difficult. It's a, something that has been part of my life for eight years, and it's a position that I've thoroughly enjoyed, but um, I'm very clear in my mind that it's time for a fresh approach and that's what's needed going forward. So that influenced your decision and the need for a change? I, I think after eight years it's a good time for um, the Ferns and Netball New Zealand to, to look at the whole programme um, and on that basis I decided that a fresh voice was really important and that meant that I wouldn't be part of it. When you sat down and looked ahead at the next four years, could you picture developing a team that could beat the Australians regularly? Um, I, I certainly could, and I was pretty keen to because I, I'm um, really optimistic about the um, youngsters in this group. But I then had to look at it's been I've been there for eight years, and perhaps um, perhaps that could be achieved, but also achieved in a new and different way. So, and that was where my decision went. I suppose it is hard to leave when you have young players like Bailey Miss, Malia Pasika. The draw card is being there when they are the finished article. Indeed it is, but you know, when I started eight years ago, I started with a, a two young women, Casey and Laura, who were just 22 at that stage, so I have um, thoroughly enjoyed the time and working with them and seeing the players they've developed, and I'm, I'm pretty confident someone else will take that enjoyment from the likes of Malia and Kayla and Bailey.
Do you think it is essential that the person has to commit to the four-year cycle? I do. I, I think because the Commonwealth Games are coming up actually very quickly. They are early in 2018, so it's not, it's not three years away. It's closer to two. Um, so I think that's an important part. Has there been anything you've particularly regretted, whether it be something you could control or not? Well, obviously I would have preferred that the two silvers that we won at Commonwealth Games and World Champs this year were gold. Um, and of course, as any coach does, I've always, um, after every game, you look back and you think about what you could have done better each time and, and tried to remedy that going forward into the next game. Has it frustrated you that import shooters occupy three of our ANZ franchise goal shoot roles? For example, Bailey Miss can only seem to get a gig at goal attack, yet she's now the Ferns starting shooter. It seems like a kind of ridiculous situation. Um, I guess I was recognised um, what it was I was inheriting, so that's, that's been an issue for a little while. So I've tended to try and work with it rather than um, rail against it, if you like. And in Bailey's instance in particular, the fact that she was down in Christchurch with Sue Hawkins as her shooting coach, I was delighted with over this last year. Do Netball New Zealand and the franchises need to work more closely together, do you think? I'm hopeful. I think that we've come together more and more as time's gone on, and I'm hopeful that will continue going forward. There is some concern that New Zealand doesn't really have a lot of depth in terms of experienced coaches, and that Netball New Zealand might be forced to seriously consider maybe an Australian coach. What's your view on that? Um, my view is, as I always have, I want the best coach for the Ferns, and um, I've had a wonderful role model in Ruth Aiken and, and someone who has quietly um, but consistently supported me in the background through my tenure and this is my intention, whoever gets the job, that I'll follow Ruth's lead in that. Is there someone you would endorse? No, I, um, I'm not aware of who's applied, um, but as I say, they will get my full and undivided support for the period of their tenure. And looking forward to the Constellation Cup, one last fling. <laughs> Yes, one last fling, and I'm I'm really excited about it. So, and I'm really hopeful that the platform that we started to lay down at World Cup, we can continue to grow. What do you see in your future in terms of maybe a next career move, and do you think it'll involve netball? I don't know. I've been absolutely consumed by netball for eight years, and so much so that all I've thought about really was whether or not I was going to continue. So now that I've decided I won't be, I now have to put some attention to what I will be doing. <laughs> and I'll start that tomorrow. That's outgoing Silver Ferns coach Waitamanu talking to Bridget Tunnicliffe. The Black Caps coach Mike Hessen sees the upcoming three-test series against Australia as the biggest test of his coaching career. Hessen's named a 15-strong squad for the tour, which begins in October with three tests in November. Those tests are in Brisbane, Perth, and the experimental pink ball test in Adelaide. Hessen's included two all-rounders in Corey Anderson and Matt Henry, as both are recovering from injury. There's no room, however, for the Otago pace bowler Neil Wagner, who's edged out by Doug Bracewell. While Australia have gone through plenty of changes personnel-wise in recent times and were beaten by England in the recent Ashes series, they still sit at number two in the world rankings compared to New Zealand at seven. I spoke to Mike Essen about what challenges the tour will bring. They're both tracking really well at the moment. Um, I think we you know, realised there'll be some checkpoints along the way and um, you know, they're going to have to pass those to, to get on the tour. Um, you know, so far so good and I said they're important members of our squad um, in 10 test cricket but... 
Uh, we're not going to be playing or taking people if they're not fit. And you've obviously got the, the pink ball test in this. Preparation-wise for that, I mean, you've got two tests before that, of course, so how difficult is it balancing that preparation? Yeah, I think that's the that's the key point, really, is the balance and making sure we don't um, overanalyse it. We do need to gather a lot of information um, pre-start of the tour, and, and then we've got ten days from the second test to the third where we can really focus on the pink ball, and that'll be um, you know, where we'll, we'll spend most of our time. How much have you been able to, to gather from what you, you've worked with so far? How are you finding it? Uh, look, not a lot. We've, we're going to. The, the challenge is trying to find practice facilities that are in the dark, obviously. So, um, but we're, you know, we're having a bit of a practice, um, the eighth and ninth up at um, Hamilton, and, and that'll give us some further information. And um, we'll put guys in different positions and try and get them to, as um, bowl at different, you know, during different sessions and see how the ball reacts. But yeah, it, it's exciting. Any concern that? An experimental test could be the series decider. I think, you know, it's a it's a test match in its own right, and it's something that um, is a little bit different uh, and will create different challenges. Just like you go to India, you get a, a different ball. You go to England, you get a, a different type of ball. Um, we understand the, the colours a little bit different, but the the feel still the same as the normal kookaburra. Um, it's just its characteristics of how it reacts under lights and. Um, yeah, we're not really going to know until we get there, but you know, both teams are in a very similar boat. Now, obviously, before this tour starts, Brendan's got this, the trial in the, in the UK. How have you spoken to him about his preparation and lead into that, and how that might, he might be affected by it? Oh, very briefly. I mean, um, Brendan's going over there um, as a witness in a court case, so um, you know that's up for the court to decide. But he's he's just going over there, going to do what he needs to do, and then get back over here and want to in Australia. As a coach, how does this series shape in, in your career, challenge-wise and history-wise? Oh, I think for the whole group, it's a um, it's another step up in terms of the, what we're going to face, um, based on history, really. You know, we've obviously haven't won there in a long time, and everyone's well aware of that. And, and when you won a series, but when you do win over there, you you have to earn it. And uh, you know, we've got some guys who've got some great memories of 2011. Um, and that you know, tested Hobart, but the challenge for us is to try and win a series, and uh, you know that's something we're going to take pretty seriously. The Australians, obviously, the, the shape that they are in and the, the changes they're going through, will it help you? I'm not sure it'll help. It'll make it'll give us some more challenges in terms of trying to gather information on new players. Um, but we know that you know, if you make the Australian Test squad, you're obviously a pretty good player. Um, they've got plenty of depth from a bowling point of view and. Um, Batting-wise, there's going to be some some fresh names, but um, there's still a fair few world-class players in that lineup as well. I was talking to Black Caps coach Mike Hesson. Your Whites football coach Anthony Hudson's coming under increasing pressure, having failed to achieve a win in any of his five matches in charge. He's been forced to defend his youth selection policy after the All Whites' disappointing one-all draw in Myanmar. The 1982 World Cup captain Steve Sumner is among a number of former All-Whites who have been criticising Hudson. Sumner says the coach is cheapening the jersey by giving caps to youngsters who aren't ready for international football and possibly even ruining their careers. And he told Richard Wayne that he's worried Hudson may have alienated existing top players by not picking them. Well, it's actually about you know respecting the senior players not necessarily your first-choice players. It's the ones below that. You can't guarantee 
young players making the grade. You just can't. So do you think uh, Hudson's assertion that uh, they just need game time, they're good enough, and he's got to increase the depth is the wrong approach? Well, look, he's, he's entitled to his opinion and he's entitled to do what he wants. He's a national coach. But it's not the view that I would hold. You know, you've got to earn the right to be a full all-white, I believe. You, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that he's, without looking at what the next very best players in New Zealand, is looking at age group reps, under 23s, under 20s, under 17s, rather than looking at who are the very next best players. Because they're, they're the ones that I would back if I was looking to get results and needs to blend some in. Because, you, you know, you can't start talking down the future and certainly not too far. It's got about the here and now. Uh, they're not far away from the qualifying campaign. And you need to have blokes that are fully fledged, fully fledged men playing at international level. When you play Fiji, when you play the likes of New Cali and you play them at their place, you'll find out what it's about. And if you're there with kids, look out. So you're saying the time frame is completely wrong to be blooding the, the, the youngsters and that we... You don't, look, you don't bleed youngsters that many with the qualifying campaign on your doorstep and trying to say that you're making, you, you're broadening the base of football players. No, you're not. You're just giving them games because a number of them will not be good enough. And I'd suggest to you that he's already, probably already played some players. Some players have probably, kids have already played their way out, not played their way in. So you're not broadening the base with them. And I look at it like this. In my time, we had a 19-year-old Ricky Herbert made his way through into the international side. He went on to play 85 times for the All-Whites. We had an 18-year-old Winton Roofer who went on to play, and Ricky played full-time professional at Wolverhampton Wanderers. We had Winton Roofer, 18 years old, went on to become the Oceania Player of the Century, played at Ferder Bremen. Even Franz Beckenbauer said that if he was German... He'd have had him playing for Germany in his time there. So you're talking of guys that really went the whole way, and that's a lot to live up to. And you're not, you might not find that type of player in amongst these boys just yet. He uh, has to obviously actually get out there and qualify now, and he told the media on arrival back in Auckland that from now on he's going to be playing his top side. What do you think of that? Okay, that's fine. Let's see if the players are prepared to come back. Whether we can get them back at the time, you can't afford to cut off your nose to spite your face and, and who knows, he may well have done that with the likes of Durante, the likes of Stigman and the likes of Moss. I don't know, we may have done. But all whites great Winton Roofer, a former teammate of Steve Sumner's, believes Hudson's on the right track. Roofer, the Oceania footballer of the century, says results now aren't important, but what matters is qualifying for the next World Cup in Russia in 2018. Roofer's nephew Alex made his full senior debut in Myanmar. And Roofer admits there are six graduates from his football academy in the current New Zealand squad. You can understand their grievances. Steve Sumner was, you know, one of the greatest all-white captains of all time. He took New Zealand to the World Cup in 1982. I had the privilege to be under his captaincy as a teenager myself. The guy's inspirational, so he's got a lot of knowledge. But as I say, from my point of view... Uh, I'm a fan of Anthony Hudson. I'm a fan of, uh, if I was the coach myself, I would be probably doing something similar to what he's doing. For me, the focus is really just qualify for Russia World Cup 2018. So anything else, results now against Myanmar and anything for me is secondary.
He certainly cast his net around, hasn't he? Like going to some players who are, you know, like the um, the gentleman Zimopoulos from uh, plays in the Greek league, got a Wellington-born mother, I believe, not, might not have ever actually been to New Zealand. But uh, he's he's trying these players out along with these youngsters. So he's really been pushing to increase the depth because there hasn't been enough competition. Well, there, there never has. Uh, I, I run a football academy here in New Zealand for 18 years. It's a very small market, 4 million people. They're very tough to from Oceania to even you know get through to the World Cup. We've seen it. We've only done it twice, and the last time round you're playing against Mexico, one of the top teams from Concacaf, the the North American region. It's very difficult. Go to Mexico, hundred and twenty thousand mental Mexicans, and you you got to try and get a result. Very very difficult. Now you got to go to South America. It's even more difficult. Yeah, he's got a tough ask either way. Finally, perhaps Winton, he, he still maintains that they will qualify for the World Cup. That's good fighting talk. Do you think it's realistic? Of course it's realistic. As long as you're playing and, you, and you're on the park and you get to play the game, you start out at 0-0. So you're in, you're in with a chance. So you keep it at 0-0, go through, and then you, you can win on penalties. So uh, there's every chance, even against the might of South America, that we could get to the World Cup and qualify in Russia 2018. It's possible. That's Winton Rufer talking to Richard Wayne. The five-time world champion Mahi Drysdale has been left pondering just what went wrong after he missed out on winning his sixth single Skulls world title in France. For the second year in a row, he's had to settle for second, beaten by Andre Sinek of the Czech Republic by the narrowest of margins. Unbeaten throughout the season, Drysdale's lamenting losing the one race that counted in 2015. Just through the middle stages, just, just struggled to um, you know, really get into to the rhythm that I usually get into and just um, you know, I wasn't able to, to use um, you know, the power like I usually can and um, Andre actually slipped away from me in the uh, third 500, just uh, got it back out to about a length um, after I'd sort of closed down the gap. And, yeah, that was enough, um, you know, that he was able to see me off in the, the final stages. But that's quite unusual, isn't it? Because that third part of the race is usually very, very strong. Yeah, that's where I pride myself. And, and obviously, you know, not taking anything away from Andre, he, he had a fantastic race. Um but um, you know, it's it's uh, I guess for me it just just wasn't quite um, you know on on my my best form and um, you know and that as I say it makes it, it makes it very hard because uh, you know you you kind of go well I'm uh, I'm the second best in the world at you know 0.34 of a second and and you know that um, you know you've got a little bit more in the tank so you know it's it's I guess you know while it's disappointing it is also um, you know, it is good on the other hand uh, that I'm right there and uh, obviously with Rio uh, I've just got to sort those those problems out and you know it's it's I guess the issue is I've, I've now done that twice in two years um, last year I guess uh, Andre you know he, he really uh, beat me tactically last year um, and this year you know he was able to execute a race better than me so you know, that's something I pride myself on and um, you know something I've got to work on over the next year make sure I get it right in Rio Outside of that final, how were you feeling? Things seemed to be going pretty well, given the, the way the, uh, you progressed through to the final. Yeah, oh, this year's been going great, you know, and um, you know, everything was uh, was looking really good. And, um, you know, certainly uh, going into the race, I had a, a lot of confidence. Um, and, you know, there's no, no real reason 
um, for it. So, you know, that that was a, a bit of a disappointment. As I say, I usually step up and, and race really well, um, you know, and, and I can't really put my finger on it right now, you know, exactly what what went wrong. But, um, you know, I, was, I still had a very solid race. Um, obviously, uh, you know, was was pleased pleased with, um, you know, I guess my fight back. Um, but, you know, just just was uh, outdone by, uh, you know, Andre, who was in, uh, you know, really scintillating form. Is there a danger you can overanalyze these things too? Yes and no. I guess you've, you've got to spend the time and, and, you know, you've got to get to the root of a problem. Um, and, you know, once you've done that, then you can put in place things that you, you know, obviously the, the thing is you don't want to do it again. And, uh you know, that's that's something that you've you've got to work on. But um, you know, I'll I'll uh, think about it and probably watch back the, the video in the next uh, you know few weeks. And then obviously when I get back into training, I'll I'll put into place the things that I think uh, you know I need to change and and uh, need to improve on. But you know, it's uh, <laughs> I was just sort of talking before. It sort of sounds a bit silly being disappointed with a silver medal because. Uh, yeah, you know, it's a, still a fantastic result, um, but obviously, you know, my goal this year was certainly to be on top of the podium, and and I didn't quite um, achieve that. But you know, I still very much feel like I'm on on track for Rio, which is uh, you know a bonus. And I guess um, you know the the way that the team performed was uh, you know really sensational. And Mahi, maybe just a word on the overall performance of the New Zealand team because it was quite impressive, wasn't it? I mean, I know that the the goal was fourteen Olympic berths, and that didn't quite happen, but but still a good show at the at the World Champs. Oh, it's it's really been a sensational World Champs. Like the you know it, the standard has really ramped up. Um, that's that's the real noticeable thing. Uh, you know, we missed out with a couple of photo finishes. Uh, on qualifying more boats, which was uh, disappointing. But um, you know, to qualify nine is is a great achievement. Uh, we've already qualified more athletes than we did for for London, uh, from 26 to 33. So, you know, that's a, a really good effort. And I guess the most pleasing thing is is, is while we've qualified nine boats, um, we've we medalled in seven of them, uh, and the other two were fourth places. So. You know, we've we've got nine boats at the Olympics, and all nine are, are very much uh, medal uh, potential boats. So, you know, we've we've certainly got a lot of quality there, and um, you know that's really exciting. We actually uh, topped the the medal table in in Olympic events um, with seven medals and and three golds. Uh, so, you know, that was a, again a very very pleasing thing. Um, you know, one year out from the Olympics. I was talking to New Zealand rower Mahi Drysdale. The double world champion kayaker Lisa Carrington's back in New Zealand after checking out the canoe and rowing venue for next year's Rio Olympic Games. The 26-year-old will defend her K1 200 gold in Rio, as well as trying to win her maiden K1 500 Olympic title. She's had a near-perfect 2015, winning both the K1 200 and K1 500 titles at the recent world champs in Italy. It was Carrington's fourth consecutive K1 200 world title. Earlier this year, she won five World Cup gold medals in three weeks of competition, never losing a race across a variety of courses and conditions. Carrington now has five World Championship gold medals, the most of any New Zealander, and she's the first woman in 16 years and only the third in history to hold both the 200-metre and 500-metre titles at the same time. Lisa Carrington spoke to Joe Porter and told him just what keeps her motivated when she's already achieved so much. My performances in Milan 
you know, they, I was really proud of them and really happy with how it all went and happy with the whole year leading up to that. And um, I guess I'm still kind of, um, you know, I've got to figure out, we've got to go debrief and, you know, really think what worked last year and what were the positives and um, what to continue and what also to improve. So, I mean, there are still things to work on, which is really exciting. Um, and But there are also some really good things that we're doing. So going, looking forward um, to the next year, I think it's just a pretty exciting year, really. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> hey, uh, are you going to compete in more than one event in Rio? Yeah, um, obviously I hope to do the K1 200 and 500. Um, yeah, I mean, if you know that's my aim and considering how things went this year, you know, it's looking pretty promising. Um, and you know, I do really love doing both events, so that's ultimately what I want to do. Are the trainings for each and either very different from one another? I mean, do you have to sacrifice anything in either boat to give yourself a chance at both? Obviously, you, you want to win gold in both, and defending your title would be amazing, and winning a new one would be fantastic. So do, do you have to yeah, balance it out at all in, in the sort of chasing of those two golds? Um, I guess not, not really. I think they um, definitely complement each other, and I probably wouldn't be improving... Um, in both events without um, each each of them. So, yeah, I think it, that ultimately they are a positive. I mean, racing um, over a weekend and having to do six races, you know, that can be pretty taxing. And But ultimately that's what um, I train to do and that's what I know I have to do when I, you know, go to race. I have to do six races. So um, I don't think they take anything away from each other. To me, they just really enhance. Um, both, yeah, they enhance each other really. I've been able to do it for the last three years, um, doing both the K1 500 and 200. So each year has been a great learning of how to work with each event. But yeah, it's I mean it's the K1 500. It, it is the most prestigious. It is one of the prestigious events um, for women's kayaking because it has it was the original event at the Olympics for the female. So. You know, it's something that I really, you know, want to do and really work hard on. Um, and also with the 200 being my more favourite event, um, I think it's, yeah, I, I just really want to do and enjoy doing both of them. Oh, that's awesome. And, I mean, you've ticked off a few uh, boxes this year in terms of records and milestones in your career. I mean, how do you remain focused and driven when you're already at the top of your game, you're ticking off these milestones, and I guess there's not a whole lot left for you to achieve? Is it, like, is it I guess, ultimately defending your, your gold in Rio that keeps you, keeps you going forward? Oh, no, um, not, no, probably not defending it. It's more so um, looking forward and seeing what else I can do, um, you know, be getting better every day, every um, every year type of thing. So um, winning, like winning medals is great, but ultimately my improvement in myself and my performance is ultimately what I'm looking for. So I think that's how I've been able to maintain improvement over the last few years is because I've not been, you know, striving for those gold medals or, you know, whatever type of medals it's more so just working on uh, my what I can personally improve physically mentally and all those types of things so winning medals is really nice and it's a nice you know icing on the cake but ultimately um, there's only one person that's going to win a gold medal so you know not everyone can <laughs> get it on the day so I'll take I'd take away more than just 
a medal, you know, it's the whole journey and working towards something that seems unachievable, yeah, which is more rewarding. So I guess in that sense, I mean, if you were to achieve the double in Rio next year, it, it wouldn't tempt you into retirement? You'd still want to, you know, carry on and, and just see exactly how far you can go? Well, yeah, I mean, that is, a, I think that is the test whether, um, you know, I've achieved all I want to achieve um, by Rio, but I'm pretty undecided whether I'll, I'll keep going, but ultimately I don't really see um, Rio as an as an end point. So, yeah, like... I think if I turn up one day and decide, you know, well, this isn't me, you know, I think that might put me more into retirement than, um, you know, achieving medals or anything like that. That's Lisa Carrington talking to Joe Porter. Now, also looking ahead to Rio are the country's Paralympians. Cameron Leslie's one of the middle hopefuls for New Zealand, although he's planning on competing in not one but two sports. Last month, the 25-year-old double Paralympic gold medalist qualified for Rio after winning a silver medal in the men's 150-metre SM4 medley at the IPC Swimming World Champs in Glasgow. Next month, Leslie will head to Japan for the Oceania Wheelchair Rugby Championships, where his Wheel Blacks team hopes to qualify for Rio too. Matt Chatterton spoke to Cameron Leslie about the possibility of representing New Zealand at two sports. Yeah, it's not exactly a common thing to be to do two sports at the same Paralympics, and especially two sports that are so different as swimming and wheelchair rugby are. Um, yeah, it's sort of been a dream of mine for a while, or like a, something I've wanted to do, but it's has, the opportunity hasn't presented itself too much. Um, whereas now there, there is the opportunity to do it, and and hopefully we can actually get the wheelchair rugby guys qualified and um, have them part of the team. Competing in wheelchair rugby and being a swimmer, how do those two sort of help each other? Like uh, being a swimmer, does that help your, I suppose, uh, your endurance uh, playing playing wheelchair rugby? Yeah, so swimming helps my. Uh, my fitness hugely. Um, it, it's, I mean, we do so much heart rate based training and um, focusing on your aerobic side and 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 being able to recover in a short amount of time. Um, and then comparing wheelchair rugby to swimming, it's such dynamic and sort of explosive movements, which is what you want in the pool as well. When you're you know, talking, you know, diving off the blocks or tumbling, uh, pushing off walls and that sort of thing, real explosive sort of energy. Um, so they're, they're the two complement each other really well, like that, as, as well as you, know, you work in similar muscle groups. Um, and if you're getting explosive use of of, of those muscle, those same muscle groups, it, it's they're good for each other. And so, um, what would you prefer? I mean, this is uh, probably quite a hard question. Would you rather win gold at wheelchair rugby or swimming? What's the what's the what's the uh, p- preference? Um, I definitely would rather win gold in swimming purely because that's uh, I guess that's what I've done for quite a while, and, and next year will be uh, hopefully a hat trick for me in, in terms of golds. Um, that's what I'm staring down the barrel of at least um, but I mean just to have the wheel blacks there would be an, an accomplishment in itself Yeah I see um, it's, you, you're going for the three-peat and the 150 medley uh, gold would that, be, that must be quite an accomplishment or a big goal for you Yeah it's a huge goal for me and it, it's, it's not just from a personal side of a personal point of view and just to uh, I guess to, to prove to prove to myself that I, I could do it because I started out in the sport and people told me I was no good and uh, I wasn't really um, looked at as having too much promise. So it, it's really nice to to have come as far as I have, but it's also it's not a common thing for Paralympians to, to go to three Paralympics in a row and win gold at each one. Um, there would only be a handful of people that would have done that. What is the goal? I mean, you probably haven't set this far ahead, but after Rio, have you got any ambitions after that? I definitely want to swim for the year after it. Um, 
but then from there, yeah, so many things can change between now and then, um, you know, living situations or, or, or what. So there hasn't been too much uh, decision-making made on that. It's I know the next year is going to be tough, so I'm just trying to head down, bum up, and, and keep the eye on the prize, eh? The World Champs, actually, this year, uh, you've got silver, I see, at the Worlds. Um, were you quite happy with how your results went uh, over in Glasgow? I was disappointed to get silver, but it was... The silver lining for me was that it was a really good time and it was only half a second off my personal best that I did in London in 2012 and I haven't come close to that time since I did it. So it's it's good to know that I'm on, that I'm on track to do a really fast time next year. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't do sport to, to come second. So it was yeah, very disappointing to, to get silver. Yeah, I can imagine most people would uh, prefer that goal, wouldn't they? Um, just oh, yeah. qu- just quickly, uh, the German Open next year. Have you uh, have you penciled that in, or have you pinned that in that you'll be going next year? Yeah, yeah. So, yep, that is it's on the radar. What would you like to get out of that? And as obviously that's in about May, I think next year. And the build up to Rio, what sort of goals have you set for that? Um, it'll probably be. I, I wouldn't. I would not imagine that we'd actually. We wouldn't taper down for that competition but we'd be focusing on just trying to go as fast as you can and uh, still actually on a relatively normal training load workload so if I can do a similar time to what I just did in Glasgow um, next year but having not tapered for it that's a that'd be a very good sign uh, looking forward to Rio. That's Cameron Leslie talking to Matt Chatterton. The Rotorua golfer Danny Lee made history this week when he became just the fourth New Zealander to be named in the International President's Cup team to play the United States and South Korea next month. The tournament, which is held every two years between the US and an international team, is played over three days. The 25-year-old Lee joins Frank Nobolo, Greg Turner and Michael Campbell as the only New Zealanders to play in the tournament, which has been running for over 20 years. Only once as the international side won the trophy, that was back in 1998 when Nobolo and Turner were members. Greg Turner told Matt Chatterton just what's needed to beat the American side. It just seems like he's maturing. I mean, he's you know he's he's paid his dues. He uh, yeah he's been a very uh, I think he's always been a very aggressive player, and um, you know you know perhaps he's um, you know he's just evolved into you know to containing that aggression just a little bit. Still, obviously, very aggressive. But, um, you know, it's the old story. If you just keep making more birdies than you do bogeys, things work out quite well. Yeah, indeed. Now, um, you were one of the one of the only men uh, outside the US to lift the trophy back in 1998 when the international team won the President's Cup for the first and only time thus far. What uh, what do you think, coming from that team, uh, needs to be done to be able to beat the Americans at, uh, at the President's Cup? Yeah, look, it surprised me that it hasn't happened more often because they've always, um, you know, on paper got pretty strong teams, the internationals. Um, yeah, look, I, I guess it's very hard for an international team with no particular, you know, sort of geographical bond um, uh, to to sort of to gain from that team atmosphere, especially when you're playing in, in America. So I think obviously the best chance is probably when they're outside of America. And I would have thought this time in Korea, which is, you know, quite a different environment for the Americans. Um, uh, you know, probably more so than if it had been in Australia or South Africa. Um, yeah, that may be, you know, a help as well. And there are some, you know, I noticed there's some, you know, a serious contingent of Asian players um, uh, within that international team. So uh, must be a great chance this year, I would have thought. 
you, you can, I suppose, count Danny as, you know, one of those players because, you know, he was born in South Korea, but born in Seoul. So it, it is like another home for him. And when you played in it, it was in Royal Melbourne. So that was pretty close to home for you in 98. Do you think home course advantage will play a big factor for the international team? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, Danny's roots are Korean, obviously. So, I mean, it's his home away from home. And, um, you know, with, with, yeah, you know, with the other you know, Asian contingent there, they won't be out, you know, culturally it won't be such a different experience for them so um you know i think that does um uh, or it certainly was a factor of royal melbourne for us not so much because the culture in australia is vastly different from that in the, in the united states but you know the courses there are, are play quite differently i think to the american courses and look, i'm not sure uh what, you know what type of course they're playing on in korea but um uh, you would have thought the koreans will get in behind that international team and you know you, it's having having the crowd behind you is obviously a big um yeah, it was a big plus. Um, you represented both New Zealand at the Eisenhower and you played in the President's Cup. Do you think the President's Cup has, you know, that aura about it in New Zealand? Because, I mean, Danny is the first person in 10 years. Do you think New Zealanders are keen to make that team? Oh, I think so. You know, I mean, there were a lot of New Zealanders in Melbourne when we played there in 98, I recall. Um, so, I mean, it hasn't been top of the... Because it only happens every couple of years and because we haven't had a Kiwi... You know, in there for a while, it probably doesn't have the same, quite the same uh, interest levels here, um, you know, as it might have. Um, so it'll be a good chance. And you know, the time frames, you know, time zones work a bit better than some for us. Um, so yeah, hopefully people, will, um, you know, will will watch it and enjoy it. It's always great golf. You know, if you watch those Ryder Cups, Prisons Cups, same sort of thing. It's it's exciting from day one. Um, you know. You don't have to wait till Sunday afternoon um, for the excitement to build. It's happening right there from you know from the first hit. Um, you know, great fun to watch. That's Greg Turner talking to Matt Chatterton. The New Zealand rally driver Hayden Paddon's hoping for a top three finish at this week's World Rally Championship event in Australia. Paddon's been promoted to the number two WRC car for the Hyundai team because of his knowledge of the Australian event and his preference for gravel. Paddon's competed at the Coffs Harbour event three times previously, securing a career-best sixth place last year with Hyundai. He spoke to Richard Wayne about what lies ahead. You know, it's a humbling to, to know that the team uh, willing to put their face behind us to, you know, to be scoring for the team because the Manufacturers' Championship is number one priority for all the teams, and it's a big responsibility. But uh, you know, we're up for the up for the challenge, and uh, you know, for me personally, it doesn't change our approach to the weekend. We're still going out there with the same sort of personal target of uh, trying to get on the podium. Uh, technically, it doesn't change anything. The only thing it really changes is the number on the side of the car. So does this promotion mean extra pressure for you? How are you handling that? Is is there any extra pressure? Uh, there probably should be. Uh, but, you know, I'm not trying to look at it in that sense. I'm trying to look at it in the way that, you know, I want a good result here. If we can achieve that, then that's great for the team. So um, I don't think there's any point thinking about the the extra pressure uh, because that's when you don't perform so we've just got to do what comes natural and, and prepare well like what we've been doing and just get on with the job you know when you you know if you put any unnecessary pressure on yourself or if you're starting to to try and push and make things happen that's often when things don't flow and uh, obviously that's when you don't go fast enough. I suppose the converse is true isn't it that you know you've had a couple of rallies that maybe didn't go you know your way compared to how you've gone a bit earlier and you can't let that affect you either. No, it's, um, when you've got 13 rallies in the World Rally Championship, uh, I can guarantee you that not all 13 are going to be good. Uh, even if you've got a name Sebastian, you still have one or two bad ones a year. So it's 
part and parcel of the sport, I, I guess the, the biggest thing is how you actually pick yourself up and those things, learn from them and, and become stronger. And how good would a win be? I mean, this this must be the aim ultimately for a rally like this on, on your favourite surface. Obviously, it would you know, be a dream come true, but uh, you know we've got to be realistic as well. Like At this level, it's so close and, and so fast within the top 10. And, you know, even trying to get on the podium is going to be a big challenge. Of course, you want to try. The Volkswagens at the moment, you know, that are very fast. We don't probably quite have the car at the moment uh, until maybe next year when our new car comes. But there are a few uh, factors in our favour this weekend, and we just need to make the most of those and, and see how we end up. And what are those factors, the gravel? Yeah, we have a good road position. Uh, we're 10th on the road for the first two days, so uh, there's, there's probably not as much gravel as what there has been here in recent years, but there's enough that we will get a bit of an advantage from that, so we need to make the most of that. And the kind of roads also to your liking over in Coffs Harbour? Yeah, there's a, a few new stages on, on Friday this year, which um sort of a bit more New Zealandish, if you like, uh, more public roads, sort of farm, flowing uh, farmland-type roads, and really, really nice. Sunday is a bit more technical and tricky in the forest, but in general, yeah, I do enjoy the stages. How does the setup change from the rallies in Europe to the, the rally in Australia with the roads and the weather, I suppose, uh, you know, all a bit different? But then again, that familiarity from the New Zealand conditions, which are reasonably similar, I suppose. Yeah, not a huge difference. Uh, we've taken the setup from Sardinia as a bit of a base. The gravel rally is the gravel rally at the end of the day, and, and then you have some slight variations in the grip. So here, being that the roads are smoother, it means we can run the car a little bit lower. Uh, we don't have to protect the car as much, and uh, we can be a little bit more aggressive because the grip's a bit high here, so we can be a bit stiff with the suspension. So it's, it's not major changes. It's just uh, you know small steps. And finally, the uh, press release uh, says you're aiming for top three. You mentioned the podium is going to be difficult, but um, I guess that's within your grasp. Oh, definitely. That's what we're here to do. We're here to try and get on the podium, and if we don't get on it, yeah, I probably will be a little bit disappointed at the end. So, um, yeah, you've got, to, you've got to have targets, and, and sometimes those targets have got to be able, a little bit higher to reach than others, but that's uh, part of the process of trying to become the best. That's rally driver Hayden Patton talking to Richard Wayne. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Remember, you can contact us at sport at radionz.co.nz and you can also follow us on Twitter at RNZ Sport. On behalf of the Extra Time team, I'm Stephen Hewson. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.